so this evening I will start with a little differently than usual uh, in so far that uh, I want to just uh, read a little from uh, a book I have just uh, written and has just come out because tonight I want uh, to look at the subject of the book but in a short detail and this is about habits and patterns because for me meditation is very much about that about seeing our patterns our habits and trying to find in a way creative way to be with them but first in a way I want to look little at habits at patterns and uh, I was struck one day because I was in the market and I was looking at some amber, uh, amber, and in it, in that amber piece, there was an ant. And I kind of looked at this ant and I did not buy it because it was so much like a common garden ant of now. It was so the same. At one level, it was not so special. But what was special about that ant is that it was four million years old. And it was the same. And I asked a friend of mine, but with a biologist, is it really the same? And he said, the form is the same, but chemically it's very different. And so in a way, what is amazing about ant is that at one level they're extremely resilient and at the same time, they're extremely adaptive. And I think this is, in a way, the same about life. Everything alive has evolved through replication. So you have repeated patterns <coughs> in conjunction with occasional mutation. But if there was no stable pattern that repeated themselves, it would be impossible for any creature to continue in a constant consistent form. So I think it's very important that when people say they want to get rid of habits, be careful. You know, I mean, at one level, it's useful. We need patterns. We need habits. But if there was only repetition and no possibility of uh, variation, then the living system would be unable to adapt to change. So in a way, you have a repeated pattern to ensure stability and then random mutation to allow for the possibility of adaptation to new circumstances. So in a way, repetition and adaptability are equally important for life to continue and to evolve. But if we suppress variation, and I think often that's what we do when we become fixed in habits, we kind of, in a way, suppressing variation, then in a way, the result is either stagnation or regression, and with often only breakdown or chaos will change. So then you know it's the same. If we're fixed in patterns of behavior and if we resist change, it can cause us too to stagnate or to regress. So in a way, we have a choice. Do we want change to be the result of a chaotic breakdown, or do we want to be a responsible agent creatively involved in the flux and transformation of our own life. And to me, this is a thing about meditation. I think that meditation helps us to become a responsible agent, involved in, in a way, the creatively involved in the change in our lives. But at the same time, I think it's very important not to kind of give a totally bad press to patterns and habits. They have a function. And to see that both novelty and familiarity are essential for learning because learning be begins in finding a response to changing situation, which then give rise to habitual patterns of response once we have been repeatedly exposed to similar situations. So patterns arise for a good reason. But it's kind of how long are they useful, skillful, and beneficial, and when? do they become really kind of like, they fix us, they limit us? When is it kind of just to learn and to become familiar? And when does it become like kind of like we become stuck? It's kind of like a groove. So as human beings, we are constantly moving 
in a way from novelty to routinization. But sometimes I feel we often get stuck in the routine part of it. So as a child grows and develops, it's through establishing patterns of behavior that he or she learns how to eat, how to walk, go to the toilet, read and write, etc. We are surrounded by patterns. We are made of them. We live by them. So patterns like eating are necessary for our survival. Others, like driving a car, are learned activities that make our life easier. Both can simply remain as abilities that we possess and have learned, but they can also develop in negative and positive direction. We can eat skillfully or unskillfully. We can drive carefully or dangerously. So in a way, we learn something, we become habituated to it, and then do we do it in a skillful way? Do we do it in an unskillful way? And to me, this is very much what meditation is about. I think meditation is not just for us to just sit and wait for this amazing state of whatever to happen. No, I think it is a kind of a, a life process of developing creative awareness. And through that, in a way, developing a way to encounter the world, to engage with the world, to respond to the world in a creative way. Instead of what we often do is we react blindly. Something happens before we even think we've reacted. And very often it is damaging to ourselves, it is damaging to others. And I think the meditation through the stability, through the calmness, and also through this kind of inquiry helps us to look what is going on before we kind of react to say, what is going on? What is going on in my mind? What is going on in my body? What is going on in my heart? So that we can, in a way, respond from knowledge instead of, in a way, responding more from a automatic patterns and habits. So as human beings, we have this function, this basic function of thinking, of feeling, of sensing. And this is, in a way, there to express, to manifest our potential. But then life happens, life unfolds. There are the conditioning of society, of culture, of family, of tendencies. There is a complex conditioning that forms over the years. And then we start to have, we can very much see that in meditation. We can see, recognize this, what I would call this mental pattern this emotional pattern, this physical pattern. You sit in meditation and you feel something, and most of the time you have felt that before. Same with the thought, same with the sensation. I think over time we can recognize, oh, I know this. And also I think what is important to see is that we also see it in daily life. What we experience here in meditation is not foreign from what we experience in daily life. And I think that's what the meditation is important to make us see it in a gentler way, in a kind of way where we can be more spacious with it. And, and instead of being judging or caught by it, we can say, wait a minute, what goes on? How does it manifest? What shape does it take? Because often I feel this kind of groove that we have, these habits, are like ancient survival mechanisms that in a way we might have needed in our childhood for whatever reason, but that when we become adult, in a way we don't need them anymore, but they become habitual. I mean, that's the way I am. That's the way I do think often with things. But we might not need to do that. And to me, what is useful about the meditation is that the meditation can make us see that actually there are different levels of patterning. That is very, because often I think we, again, we mix them all up. But I think we have very different type of patterns, and they have very different levels. And I would say, over time, it seems to me I have seen three different levels. One is what I would call the intense level, then the habitual level, and the light level. And I think with each, we have to deal with them in a different way. That's why we need to be aware of that difference. Intense 
is when suddenly we feel extremely intensely. Let it be in our thought, let it be in our feeling, let it be in our sensation. We feel, wow, it's kind of like we're totally taken over by either great emotion or tumultuous thought or very painful sensation or whatever. And I think what is important there with the intense level is to see that it happened because of conditions. Because it's very, when something intense happened, something shocking happened, unexpected, painful, we experience something intense, and generally we say, it is always like this. I always feel like this. My life is always a mess. It always be a mess, etc., etc. Instead of seeing, I feel this intensely because something happened. And I would say generally, you know, a few days ago, an hour ago, but generally something happened. So I think it's very important to see that. And then instead of going into it's always like this, which is not help you to deal with it, to see, okay, why am I feeling so intensely? What has happened? What is going on? How can I deal with this? Then there is an habitual level. And habitual is when it's fairly repetitive. It's just kind of tendencies, and it's what I would call predictable. That, you know, your friend can generally predict that, you know, if somebody says that, you will say this. You can also predict it. I mean, over time, you might be a little blind to it, but generally you know. There is a certain way you go, you know, like kind of a little like the red flag to the bull. You know, there is just this tendency, this pattern, this kind of habitual way of, of kind of acting, reacting. And then there is a light, light level. And that I think we can experience and is very useful in meditation. When, you know, you, especially I would say during, you know, the fourth day of a meditation retreat, you generally are a little calmer, things are a little easier. And so you sit in meditation and then you can see kind of, you know, a certain kind of emotional light thing, a little sensation, a little light thought. I mean, for myself, what I can observe is what I would call the London planning. In a year's time, in May, I am planning to take my sister and my niece to London. So I mean, this is in a year's time. There is not such hurry. And I'm sitting there. Yes, you know, which would be the best part of London? Bloomsbury, Seoul Square, St. James Square, Victoria. And then, da, 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 and then, okay, then, I mean, it's, and then I, come on. This is London. This is in May. Back here. And it's just light stuff. It comes up. I see it, I come down. It's just very light. But it's something that I can see comes again and again. So in a way, to, the thing with the habits, the habitual stuff is that it is repetitive. Either that it be intense, habitual, or light. So what I think is interesting in meditation in terms of the habits, the pattern, is that actually through the concentration concentrating on the breath, on the sensation, on the sound, then, you know, because I think often people think of concentration as I must concentrate, I must concentrate, I must not have thought. Personally, I don't see it that way. I think actually it's interesting to concentrate and then to see what is it that takes me away. I think it's as interesting, concentration, as what is it that distracts you. I think it's, I, both are very interesting. The, the second one is very informative. And just to be there, well, what am I thinking about? Back to the breath. Oh, where was I? Back to the breath. So it becomes information to see what is it. I have a tendency to go on about what is it that is on my mind? What is it that I feel repeatedly? So it's information. It is not bad. It's just functioning of the mind. And then I think with the inquiry to see, oh, yeah, what's that? So in a way, the focusing makes you see I am somewhere else, and the inquiry makes you, hmm, what, what's that? What's that about, in a way? Hmm. So you notice it in a certain way. 
and then you come back to the breath or whatever it is. So in a way, what I want to do now is to look at the mental patterns. What kind of mental patterns do we have? Because I have been seeing a few people in interview and it seems that one of the themes that they have is thoughts. They keep having thoughts of various types. And to see very much that thoughts are activity of the mind. They're just a functioning of the mind. But often we feel that they either they proliferate, they agitate us, they confuse us. Often we feel they're like a burden, they're like kind of they burden us. And so in a way to notice in meditation, what are, what are the thoughts? Where are they going? What are they doing? And to see that whatever thought you have in your meditation, the same will be on your mind in your daily life. And I think that's why it's useful to look at them here because it'd be clearer and easier to look at them. And then in daily life, you can start to recognize and you can start to see, do I want to follow this? Do I want to feed this or not? And then the meditation gives you a tool to actually in a way disempower the mental habits. So first, the intense one. So intense mental patterns is that when recent conditions, something has happened, which was very upsetting or very fantastic, doesn't matter, and it becomes very obsessive, very obsessive, very relentless, you know. Let's say, you know, one of you, maybe five days before you come on the retreat, you fall in love with somebody. And then you come and sit on the cushion, and I'm fairly sure that, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> and then, you know, it will be fairly kind of obsessive about the object of our love and the glow of that. Or if I think of myself, once I was looking for some um, research for some grants, and I had not heard about them for a long time. And uh, suddenly one morning, I get three letters with three grants to do that research. So I was over the moon. This is fantastic. This is blah, blah, blah. And that day, I had my job at the time was to house cleaner. So I had to go a house clean. So off I go to clean and... Suddenly I realize I'm kind of like, you know, and I can't really do the job properly. I'm kind of all over the place. But I was like, oh, this is, I was really not with the bathroom. I was, you know, in Japan, in Korea, I was far away. So I just sat on a chair for about five minutes. Just. And then after that, I was still happy. I was still joyful, but I was not agitated. And so in a way, it's to see that when it's intense, it's kind of like there is this, this guy is very relentless, very obsessive. But it's the same. We see if something happens which is negative. Uh, in winter, I went to South Africa, which is very famous for violence, theft, everything. And two days after being in South Africa, I phoned home where I live in a wonderful little quiet village in France, and we'd been burgled <laughs> in France. <laughs> Nothing happened in South Africa. And so I was sitting in meditation because I was starting to teach the retreat, and I was sitting. <gasps> Burglary. <laughs> security, security. I had two kind of obsessive things. One was security. How can we make the house secure? One then ran. And the next one was more funny. Because the next one was, I was plotting revenge. <laughs> How can I put traps the next time they come? <laughs> and, uh, and the thing with this one, it's obsessive in that way. I think at the beginning, the only thing you can do is to sit and through the tools of awareness, the, the focus on the breath, on the sensation, on the sound, loving kindness, whatever it is, try to come back to the moment. So you create a little space, a little chink into that relentless. So you come back. Then you go again. Then you come back. I mean, this is, when it is so obsessive, that's the only thing we can do at the beginning. And for myself, because I have done meditation for a while, after a day of this, I sat there and I thought, enough, enough. And I stopped, and I did not do it after that at all. 
So in a way, what we also do in meditation is we develop the power of the creative awareness. When you can see, this is enough now. I've done it for a day, that the shock went through, now I could just let it go. And so there was no, so the power was kind of went through that seeing. So in a way, what I think, in a way, it's kind of to rest in the moment, to use a tool of awareness, to try to say to ourselves, let it go, let it be just for a second, just for a moment, let me just be present. In terms of daily life, when we caught in that very obsessive, relentless type of mental thing, I think what is important is to try to come back to the multi-aspect of our life. Because when we have this relentless thought, we really think, I am just this being a burgled person or being a fallen in love person or whatever it is, we can really stuck and you reduce your life to that. And I think what we need to do is, again, through the help of the meditation to see my life is more than being burgled. My life is more than whatever might happen to me at any given moment. So we try with the meditation to bring more the whole condition we are in instead of being stuck in that one recently happened condition. Then there is a habitual level of the pattern, of the mental pattern, mental habits. And then it's like grooves. It's like I'm nearly like we have groove in the mind. We have channels in the mind. And then we just go that way. It's kind of you sit in meditation and poof, you go there. Poof, you go there. I mean, it's kind of... And so I'll go through a few of these, and to me what is interesting in terms of the meditation and the awareness is to actually over time you can taste the thought, the habit, you can feel it, you can actually feel the texture of that mental pattern. And that's very useful to recognize it, to know it more. The first one, which is one of the favorite thing people do when they sit on a cushion in meditation, is daydreaming. And the texture of daydreaming is gooey. It's like, it's extremely seductive. And it starts by, if I had, if I was, I don't know, a great poet or millionaire or a great guru, I don't know, whatever is your dream. And you just have, if I was, if I had, and then you make, I mean, daydreaming, I can guarantee you have no pain in the legs. When I ring the bell, you say, oh, already? But my story was going so well, you know? Because it's, and why is it so wonderful? Why is daydreaming so seductive, so gooey? Because it is a mono-reality. In a daydream, you do everything. It's like a film. You are the actor, the screenwriter, the producer. You even sell the peanuts. Everything. <laughs> so then, of course, you then you tinker with it to improve it, you know? And then it's very seductive. It's very agreeable. But I think the problem is that if we do that in daily life, it is extremely frustrating. Because imagine, you are at home, dreaming, daydreaming about the perfect husband, the perfect children, and then they come back from work and from the class, and they're really grumpy and difficult, and you think, but why are not they like in my dream? I think this is very problematic. So in a way, to see when we are sitting in meditation and we go into this daydream, to see, ah, daydreaming, back to the full moment, back to the moment as it is. It doesn't mean that we cannot use a function. I mean, daydreaming comes from imagination, and there is a place for imagination. But you see, when is it a function and creative, and when does it become these mental habits which actually take away from us being really present, fully creative in the moment? Then there is the next one. Another favorite one that we do in meditation is ruminating. Or ruminating is more painful. You sit in meditation, you actually find nothing is happening to you, apart possibly from a pain in the knee, 
that I cannot help, but you're there, nobody is doing anything, and suddenly you think, three years ago, they did this to me. How could they do this to me? This was so painful. Yes, it was painful. It was so painful. And actually, you were fine a minute, and then suddenly you feel really lots of pain for what they dare do and dare say, you know, and you go round and round. And then there is this interesting movement to the future. And then generally you start to plot revenge. You know, what is the best way to get them that it will be equal to what I suffered? And then you go round and round. Which is not very compassionate, is it? <laughs> Activity, revenge, in meditation. And so in a way to see, can we learn from that? Can we in a way last? The past, in the past, it's gone, it's gone. We can't do nothing about it. But we can have learned from it, and we can let go of it. Also, in the future, you cannot do all this scripting of what the person is going to say, and you will say, which really get them, and they generally don't say what you. <laughs> so the preparation is not very useful. And the best preparation you can do is to be aware in this moment to really build your stability, to really build your creativity and your awareness now. So in a way, noticing that kind of rumination, if you kind of start this, what I would call painful rumination, try to come back to the breath, to the life, to the potential in this moment. Then another one, which also we have a tendency to do, is rehearsing. You sit in meditation and you rehearse conversation. I mean, you rehearse past conversation, you rehearse future conversation, and I mean, it's very occupying, but it has, again, little to do with being fully aware, being fully present in this moment. Another one, which is very interesting in terms of meditation retreat, is silent, is uh, fabricating, which is very happen easily in a silence. Is Generally, it's out a little anxiety, a little fear, and then somebody look at you funny. And you think, why are they looking at me funny? You know, and you kind of start this huge story about this person who looked at you funny and really, you know, there is a problem with Gaia House, you know, people looking at me funny, and off you go. And maybe the person had something in their eyes. I mean, nothing to do with you. I mean, once I was teaching a retreat, and there was this lady, a whole afternoon, we could hear her. She was kind of crying. So at the end, I was a little worried. I said, you know, are you okay? She said, yeah, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. And then after that, she was fine. And then at the end of the retreat, she told us that afternoon, she'd been sitting in meditation, and suddenly she thought, my cat, my cat is dying because my friend is not feeding my cat. And I'm not there for my cat who is dying. Whole afternoon, she spent on this. And the cat was perfectly fine, and the friend was feeding the cat. But to see how out of little anxiety you create this huge story, which has nothing to do with reality. And I think, in a way, what is useful there is to bring the experiential inquiry and to ask, but sometimes, is this true? When we're telling ourselves stories, is this true what I'm telling myself? How much kind of realistic is it? How much likely is it? Is this true? I think sometimes it's useful to kind of check. Then another thing we do is judging. Am I sitting right? Am I meditating right? Is this right? Is this wrong? Is this good? Is this bad? And of, again, we need wise discrimination. But when it becomes a habit, it's like kind of we like a judge on top of our experience. And we're always passing sentences. And we never take a holiday. It's kind of, <laughs> and it's going in a way there is, and it's very tiring. It's very burdensome because you can't really be in the experience itself because you're always, you know, jumping to the judgment. Judgment of yourself, judgment of others. And so in a way to notice that tendency and to see, can I just come back to the moment? as it is, trying, if it's not necessary, to judge it. Because, of course, if you are walking along the road and suddenly you hear this kind of big noise coming toward you, yes, you need you know, to have 
quick judgment discrimination. But most of the time when you sit in meditation, you don't need that. Generally, it's no emergency in general. So in a way to see, how can I relax that judging thing? How can I just bring it back to its useful function? To notice that this is a glass of water, this is a clock. And I can't drink from the clock. And I can't possibly can read the time here, but I'm not so sure about that. <laughs> I mean, discrimination is useful. But if it becomes a habit, then you know it colors. It kind of fix everything around us. Then there is another one, kind of a side shoot of judging. It's comparing. You compare. I mean, often in meditation retreat, I find it fascinating because the one person will say, will think that everybody else is meditating better than them. This is generally the idea. Unless you really have been meditating for a long time, and then you can really sit very well, and then you think, I am the best, and they're really crummy. <laughs> Can't they have better meditator at Gaia House? You know? And it's important to see with uh, comparing. Either you compare up, either you compare down. It goes either way. And to be careful with that. To kind of see, actually, we never know how another person is. We never know the way they are inside themselves. We never know their life. And so often we think, oh, it's so much better than us, but we have no idea. And in a way, this comparing might often stop us from really seeing and appreciating what do I have now. Because often we feel something is missing, and it's always better over there. But first, in a way, to see what is it that is good in my life? What is it about myself, about others I can cherish, I can appreciate? Then there is planning. I mean, this is a favorite activity in a meditation. You plan how much you're going to eat at lunch. Today, a little, little less. I was hungry yesterday. Maybe a little, little more. Maybe... Maybe one ravita more, yeah, yeah. At one and a half, yes. So we plan, or we plan where we're going to walk. Yeah, yeah. Or we plan when we're going to leave. That, again, can be a favorite activity. <laughs> or we plan our holiday, or we plan our retirement, depending the length of time. But again, planning is useful. You need to plan to come here. But when does it become a habit? And then it's more kind of like nearly a, a mean of control that we're trying to kind of control so we don't get surprised. We have planned, we prepared. And what I would suggest, that if you are too much like this, when something unexpected happens, then you feel very frustrated because you had it all planned so well, and now look, it's not. <laughs> and when you do this in meditation, I would say when you plan, Stop at five. Go through five, and then stop. Then <laughs> next five, stop. Kind of try to, because it's very repetitive planning. You just go round and round. So kind of try to play with it. How can you play with it? Then another one is counting. Not everybody does it, but once one meditator, because I'm always interested in new ones, if you have uh, special exotic ones. And this one, he, he used to count. When he sat in meditation, he used to count. Count the, I mean, he was an accountant, so he had a little... <laughs> you know, he used to count money in the bank, shoes in the closet, or whatever. But I mean, Stephen used to do this in Korea. Because in Korea, we walk in a certain way inside the hall. And he used to measure how many kilometers he walked in three months. Or, I don't know. So... I mean, we have many different ways, many different mental habits. And so to see, there is the function of it, which is a natural ability we have, and to see how we make it proliferate, how it becomes a habit, which then becomes a little fixing, a little limiting. And so in a way, how can we bring it back to the ability, to the function through the meditation? I think the meditation is what it helps us. That's why the coming back is basically that. When you come back to the breath, to the sensation, to the sound, you're actually disempowering the habit. 
In first, you're not feeding it, you're not increasing it, and also you're making it less intense, making it weaker, so it can really come back to its creative function. And then there is light occupying thought. And these are very interesting to look at. It's kind of like you sit there, and it's kind of like shopping list, mild shopping list. It's kind of like mild train of thought. You start with Aunt Elga, and five minutes later you are in New York. You have no idea how you got there, but you did. And just to see, it's kind of, you know, kind of light, or it's kind of light planning. And I think it's interesting to see, sometimes we sit in meditation, we focused on the breath or whatever, and actually we focused on the breath, light. Focused on the breath, light. So in a way, sometimes there is a two going on, the kind of focusing on the breath and the light stuff. And just to be aware of it, to be aware of its quality, to be aware of what generally comes up, because generally it's kind of a light, comes from the light manifestation of the habit. And I think it's an easier level at which we can work with the mental habit when they're light. So I think it's important to see them when they're light and try to work with them when they're light. Because when they become more habitual, they become intense and it's more difficult. And also to see that with the light, you can just have very light thought and suddenly it goes into habit and suddenly it's in intense. To see how quickly you can give power, you can feed the habit. And so I think in a way to kind of look at that, not to judge it, but in a way to creatively engage with all our mental habits. Because as the Buddha says, because there is this, um, this poem that maybe the Buddha says or somebody else, but I think it's very interesting. And it says, the thought manifests as a word. The word manifests as a deed. The deed manifests into habit. And habit hardens into character. So watch the thought and its way with care. And let it spring from love, born out of concern for all beings. Because I think in a way, this is what we want. It's not so much, you know, that the thoughts are problematic, but I think often these habits are actually coloring us so much that they're like an obstacle to our natural arising of our wisdom, our compassion. And, so, and also they kind of make us act in a certain way. They can make us speak in a certain way, which sometimes is not so compassionate. So you know, we're kind of trying to work at that level. And since we, we have a little time left, I wanted also to look a little, uh, just briefly, at emotional habits, because I think it is the same. And I think also it's interesting in meditation to notice that kind of if there are any emotional habits, if there is any way we feel repeatedly. Because I think, again, you have the feeling, and like thought, it's very natural to feel. This is being human being. The meditation is not going to stop us to feel sad, angry, joyful, happy, loving, whatever. These are naturally arising feelings. The meditation is not to stop them. But I think the meditation is to help us so that the feelings don't turn into disturbing emotion, where again we are agitated, confused, and it becomes very problematic. And we can, again, be lots of suffering for ourselves and others. And so in a way, to see, that's why I think meditation, where not much is going on, so generally we don't have great disturbing emotion, then we can start to notice if there any feeling which turns into this disturbing emotion. And also to see also how you have the feeling and then you have the story, you have the thought which comes in, which feeds the feeling, which then feed into it becoming a disturbing emotion, and vice versa. You have the feeling, which the thought which creates the feeling, and then if you go on with it, you can be have the disturbing emotion. And that's why I think, again, in meditation, it's very useful to look. What, are, what is my, in a way, the feeling talk? I'll talk more about this tomorrow. But to be kind of aware of the feeling talk, to see 
how do I feel? I need a certain repetitive feeling that I experience. And so, just briefly to look at one, which I think again is relatively common in most people, and it's fear. Fear, I think is a natural survival mechanism. I think it's just kind of basic feeling in the human being, which is very useful and which is basically for us to be careful, to be aware of danger, and to kind of help this being to survive. So at one level, it's just to help us to be more careful. But if suddenly we are intensely afraid, if something happens, something threatens us, or something very fearful happens, then in a way, we kind of caught in this fear and we generally become either paralyzed or we flee, and this sometimes can be dangerous, or we become aggressive. I mean, we can have different kind of reaction to it. But I think it's interesting to notice, you know, what happened when I'm afraid. But I think it's useful to notice it when it's more light than when it's more intense because of that paralyzing effect. Then there is... Fear more as a kind of, a, I would say, habit, as a kind of emotional habit. You could say nearly like kind of a, uh, anxiety, kind of, kind of being anxious. And that's what is interesting for us, because we go very, every three years we go to South Africa to teach. And often when we come back from South Africa, we arrive in our village and suddenly we feel, oh, it's safe here. It's so safe. It's so... And we realize that a lot of the time when we're there, there is this tension. There is this... And often it's because of the people. Because sometimes we are with people who are very afraid. And they're kind of like this. And and I think this is an important thing we fear as an emotional habit, is that actually it is contagious. That actually you can really influence others. Because I know for myself, when I am in South Africa with one of my friends who is unafraid, I am with him, I don't no feeling of anxiety whatsoever because he's so grounded, solid, I can deal with it. Because in a way, fear is to make us careful. And then from that, we can creatively engage. But if we're overwhelmed by it, then in a way, it stops any creative potential for us to really be in the situation. Or you have uh, fear as a light. And I think that's what is interesting to notice, fear as a light. How does it feel when we're afraid? And can we be with fear in a way which is spacious, stable, and open? And just say, okay, I'm a little afraid. It's okay. It's not going to kill me. I can just, I mean, if nobody is threatening me with a gun, of course, I'm just talking of the emotional habit which is there when there is nothing to be afraid of. Because I think the thing to see with fear is that a lot of the time we are fearful in advance. If you're afraid of something, of course, sometimes it has to do with something going on, which I think is fair, but a lot of the time is if this happened, what if? I had a friend for 30 years. He was afraid something was going to happen. And so he had this great bird. Oh, if this happened, my life is finished. <gasps> and then one day it happened. What he was so afraid of happened. And he looked really disconcerted. And I said, but what's the matter? He said, you know that terrible thing? It happened and I am fine. I'm totally fine. Because in abstraction, you can't have your creative potential arise. But when the thing itself happens, then yes, you can deal with it. And I think that's why often fearful, fear, it's very important to say it's fear of the future, not often fear of the present. And so to come back with the meditation to the present, what is going on now? How can I be with this feeling without feeding it? just kind of being spacious with it. Because I remember when I was uh, in Korea as a nun 
in a monastery deep in the mountain. And my big fear was fear of the dark. And once we had to do this uh, all-night meditation for many days, and I was, my worry was, ah, you know, I'm going to go to the bathroom in the middle of the night. I'm going to die of a heart attack because I'm so afraid. You know, and so I went to the master. You know, what can I do? And he said, go back to the meditation. And in Korea, what we do is ask, what is this? Which will be introduced in two days, Friday morning. And I took it then as like a, a kind of a magical protection, you know, like a talisman, you know, against the bad guys. So I would go out in the dark, what is this, what is this, what is this? You know? <laughs> and then, after about two days, I suddenly realized how it worked. That when I said, what is this? Actually, I came back to the moment, to the fullness of the moment. And in that moment, because up to that point, I used to feel that I am here, in the middle of the night, in the middle of nowhere. Nobody. And then there was no fear. So in a way, to see the meditation helps us to be more stable. But also it helps us to inquire in such a way that we come back to the fullness of the moment and to really, what is going on now? How can I creatively engage? with this moment, and in a way, start to work and dissolve the power of those habits. So, that's what I wanted to say today. Are there any questions or comments? Well, again, I would say there is a, this, there is two different ways. One way is to just see it, to see you get caught, and then you come back to the breath for 10 seconds. Then you go back, and then you come back to the breath, 10 seconds. And you kind of, in a way, just create small space within it. I think when it's really kind of uh, going round and round, that, that, that's all you can do, is just come back to this small space until finally you kind of, in a way, de uh, it's kind of like you dissolve it and then it kind of become much less intense. But I think for a little while, that's all you can do. I mean, that's what I did with my burglary things. I went round and round for a day and then finally I'd created enough space so that I could see it and say, yeah, I don't need to do this anymore. But first you have to, that's what I mean by being intense. It will be there for a bit. It won't go, I think it's very important to see that intense thoughts are not going like that. They're going to take time to go. And the only thing we can do is create little space within it. Habitual thought will be much easier, though it still will come back. Like the daydreaming, come back come back, like the ruminating, but you kind of, it's a little easier, it will take less time. And of course the light one, it's much easier. But if it's something, again, as I said the other day, if it's something which is more like a theme, I think there is different thing, if it's more like a theme, something you have to make a choice, you have to make a decision or something in your life, I think the, the best thing to do is to address it once a day. Once a day for 20 minutes, you just think about this and nothing else. But you think about it in a different way, in not a repetitive way. You try to think something you never thought before. And once I had this very interesting experience with somebody who had a very difficult situation and you came on the retreat and found it very difficult. And so every day I saw that person. And what was interesting is that every day she could see a different aspect of her situation. And so every day I had a kind of a different facet 
because of just being here, not going anywhere, trying to do the meditation, every day there was a different aspect of it. So she was not stuck in one, just one. And then by the end, I felt she had a more full comprehension of our situation. And I felt that maybe out of that, there could be more kind of a creative movement. So I would say to think about it a bit and then try to let it go and kind of, if it's very strong, I would say to try to use a meditation which might be a little stronger than the breath. And one of, what I would recommend is either body scanning or I would say if you know loving kindness, to do loving kindness meditation. Because I think this is a very effective method when uh, the, there is very intense thought. Either. I mean, you will be thinking about it all the time. So, <laughs> you know, that you choose. I mean, it doesn't matter. You can do it 20 minutes sitting on the bench outside. You can do it 20 minutes sitting in meditation. I, I, I don't think it matters. You know, I think I would just say at one point in the day, focus on it and then try to inquire into it. That meditation or whatever seems convenient and appropriate, but to do it in meditation is fine because you, you're doing it anyway. So it will be a little more kind of constructive way to do it. Yeah? This isn't a question, but um, I remember John Peacock in another retreat that I attended taught us a technique that I found useful when my head is buzzing with thoughts, which he didn't give it a name, but you could call it aggressive counting, where you, you count instead of one, one count for, per breath, count for the first breath from 1 to 10, and then with the next breath from 1 to 9, all the way down, and then again. And that, you know, you, you, that keeps your, that drives away repetitive thinking, I find, after a few minutes. Yeah, you know, counting. Uh, if, if one is used counting, and is very uh, used to counting the breath, this is a uh, at that level, it's a, again, a very, it occupies you, a bit like meta-meditation. It's a very occupying thing, so that it's kind of like an antidote. It's kind of as powerful in terms of occupying power than the obsession. So yes, counting the breath sometimes can be useful in that way, and a very kind of minute counting, yes. Yeah? Yeah, when I'm, when I'm sort of struggling to find some focus and you know, coming back to the meditation on checks, it seems to take quite a lot of effort sometimes. But, um, what I do find is when, when I keep trying to go back to it and not finding anything, you know, it's really difficult, it's a lot of effort here. Yeah. I can't do this, I'm not very good at this. And then that, that thought sort of stops me trying a little bit, so you just lose, lose touch with the practice a bit. Can you maybe give some suggestions on how to keep the, the effort up? Another thing which is very important is to find a middle way between trying to be focused but not forcing oneself to be focused. Because you see, sometimes you can force yourself to be focused, but you, you need to have lots of power there. Because you see, for example, with my daydreaming, I did daydreaming for many, many, many years in many different ways. And only finally one day, but after many years, I just sat and decided this is it. I'm really going to work with this. And then I really sat and I could see Eve back, Eve back, Eve back. And it was really, for an hour, it was very difficult. I had to really put a lot of effort back, back, to really not be taken over by this but what was interesting is that after I had done this, this really one hour, which was very difficult, lots of effort, and it was really, I have never had any daydream anymore. I've, I can't even get the energy to do it. <laughs> it doesn't have the hook. But you see, it took me a long time to do it. I think in a way it's kind of like habits. You know, they have their power. And so I think... What is very important is not, it's back to this expectation. 
You see, I don't expect you to, to have this fantastic focus. I really, what I hope is that you intend. And it's okay if you go off a bit. It's okay if you go off. But can you start with an intention so that you can see, ooh, I have gone. Then you can start to, after a while, see, ooh, I have gone there. And then you can start to see, well, I don't need to go there. I think it's very important to see that with pattern, there are various stages. And I think often we want to be in the kind of early stages, you know, like, you know. But I think it took me ages for really being more focused. It was kind of a thought of, you know, and... And also to see that some meditation, it's so easy. You see it and your focus is very easy. And then other meditation, it's very hard to focus. And again, I think it's also a question of energy. So I think, to me, what would be important is not so much to worry about the focus. So in a way, so that they don't need, in a way, to be the, the, the judgment. See, the problem is the judgment, oh, I can't do this. I would say, you can do it. And you do it as you can do it. You see, you've built, I think what is very important to see, we've built the power of awareness for 20, 30, 40 years. We're not going to dissolve that power in one retreat, in one sitting. But actually, just doing this retreat, just doing one sitting, yes, Instead of maybe before you would think about it for 10 minutes, now five minutes. For me, this is an improvement. This is a great improvement. So I think to think more and kind of to see yourself more, I kind of, you go for a walk and you go maybe a little far. So I come back. You know, it's a little like the dog, you know, your dog, it's kind of go too far, bring it back. Then it goes again, of course, because it's very interesting, more interesting than come back. Whoops. You know, I mean, you know, and then sometimes the dog is very good. It doesn't go anywhere. Just <laughs> stay around. So I think it's very important that we, we try to focus, and I think it's an important part. But again, the coming back in a kind of, you know, there is a certain acceptance that you've gone off. And then you kind of, you know, okay, I come back now. I come back now. So trying to find, but I know at the beginning is such a fight because the power of the habit are so much stronger. But over time, it becomes much easier. But at the beginning, yeah, it's, it's kind of like, and so you kind of feel I'm not going anywhere. I think this is often that maybe what you think, oh, this doesn't work, I can't do this. Because you have this feeling. But I think if you look through the day, I would say you have better moment and more difficult moment. I think it's very important to see again the changing nature when you can focus and we cannot really. So you keep trying in different ways. And also, which, I think it's also important, which method works better for me. So, you know, if the sound works better, just do that. If the sensation works better, to do that. If the breath doesn't work, don't do that. So again, to kind of see what is it that helps me to focus better. That also is kind of something to look at. And then, you had something? I, had, um, I was going to ask about, um, you're talking about this state of fear, you know, when you're always anxious. Um, how can you use meditation to neutralize that in a way? Um, you mentioned not, not feeling it not feeling fear is important and I often find sometimes you know the instruction might be to, to sit with it um, and there's kind of a balance between sitting with it and also sometimes that, that can feed it I can't describe yeah, yeah no no I, I'll talk more about this tomorrow but personally I think to try to see it when it's very light I think it's very important to just first Try to see it when it's just a little, little, little feeling. And the second thing, not to name it. 
try not to name it. Not to say fear, anxiety. Because as soon as you name it, you give it a meaning. I am afraid because. I am anxious because. Or I am always anxious. Or da, 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 da. What I, what I would say, especially if it's light, if it's light, to try to be aware of the feeling sensation without naming it. And to notice more its fluid quality, how it's changing. It's a little something here, a little bubbly, a little unpleasant, but not much is happening. That's what I would say to do. Not to sit with it, but to kind of more be inside it in a kind of inquiring, experiential way, if it's light. If it's really heavy, then I would not say to sit with it. Because if it's very heavy, it's like kind of, it's color everything. And so generally, again, if it's um, in meditation, then I would say, you know, try to see if you can do either some loving kindness, or if you can do body scanning, or if you can do something and have the feeling more in the background. So it's not kind of so overpowering. And in daily life, I would say to kind of really see what can help you to shift it in some way. And I would call that creative distraction. To go for a walk, to talk to somebody, to read a book, whatever it is. To try to not... So I would not say we need to just sit with it. I don't think this is a, a kind of a good answer. I think it depends, and it's how you sit with it in a way. So, time is up. And I'll talk more about this tomorrow. So, thank you. And now there is walking meditation. <laughs>